Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 173. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PetchandPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How are you doing, Fooleman? I am recovering from COVID. Mm. Uh, as people who follow us on Twitter know, I was on the IR with the Rona for a week, but I'm returning to action. Um, you're a little under the weather yourself now. Yeah, I, as you, listeners can probably tell from my voice. I have a bit of a sore throat. Don't think it's COVID. I will, you know, take a rapid test after the podcast um, to to make sure and make sure I'm not putting anyone in harm's way. Um, but yeah, that's why my voice sounds like closer to John Wayne than my than my usual voice. This is uh, Arvin playing through for the record. This is that hockey player grit that you hear so much about. This yeah. is the podcast equivalent. Where <laughs> you, you know, you play through injuries like Patrice Bergeron with one lung or whatever. It's rough. I mean, you know, sometimes your thumb hurts, and that, that's difficult when you're looking at you the know, spreadsheets. Those finger joints, they stiffen up. So, uh-huh. yeah, there's a, there's a lot that we're overcoming to sit in chairs in the places we already live and do this podcast for you. Um, thank you, as always, to those who were patient. Uh, we try not to miss too many weeks, but uh, life got in the way. Mm-hmm. But we're back, and we have some stuff to discuss. Yes, we do. Um, so, we actually haven't recorded a podcast since Mark Giordano and Colin Blackwell started playing kind of actual games with the Leafs. So we figured something that'd be good for us to do is to talk about our initial impressions of them. Um, both have featured a Giordano, Giordano, sorry, more significantly than Blackwell. Uh, but yeah, like it, it, you know, these are the Leafs marquee acquisitions along with Ilya Lubushkin. And, you know, can they be part of the ingredients that take us from you know playoff disappointment to slightly less of a playoff disappointment (laughs) yes uh let's minimize this disappointment uh so we're at six games now um Giordano's been at all of them Blackwell hasn't but he's played several um mostly it seems like we're getting a Giordano Liljegren pairing Mm -hmm. on defense is the starting point that may not be permanent if you do just a head count of how many people are on the Leafs defense. There are a lot right now. Riley, Lyabushkin, Brody, Hall, Giordano, Lilligren, potentially Muzzin and Sandine when they return. Um, that's a lot of bodies for not a lot of spots. Mm-hmm. So who knows if they're going to continue. But Giordano, Lilligren has been primarily what's been going on. There's been a bit with Hall. Yeah, and one game with Hall, good. basically. Yeah, basically. It's looked pretty good with Lilligren, I think. It has, yeah. I mean, their their numbers together are quite strong. Uh, the Leafs kind of, with, as you said, there's a lot of names there. And I think kind of what they're doing now is they don't have as soft a third pair. Or like, they don't have a huge demarcation between their second and third pairs anymore. Mm-hmm. Right? Because, like, nominally yesterday, you would you would kind of expect Lilligren and, and Giordano to be the third pair. Right? Um, primarily because of Lilligren. But, you know, you look at their you look at their competition and their usage, and it's not cushy by any means. It's not insane either. It's like, you know, around league average. Um, but essentially, we, we now have three pairs that Keith appears to feel relatively comfortable um, using in a, in a less particular manner. Right. And that might be the eventual outcome for the Leafs is we're going to roll three pairings that are all pretty reliable. Um, maybe a little less than we have a hard minutes pairing um, that matches up, and then we kind of try and shelter the others. 
I'm not sure how it'll shake out, but certainly there are now options. And if Giordano and Muzzin are both in the lineup, I would expect them to split hard work between them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Giordano has come pretty much as advertised. He's not what he once was. Um, there's definitely some decline, as you'd expect at his age. But he's still very solid defensively, very astute. Right. You, you know, he's been a steadying presence for sure. And Lilligren, again, seems to fit him like a glove. Um, to the point where I wonder almost if this has improved Lilligren's stock as much as anything, a little bit. Yeah, it's it's good to see Lilligren do something in kind of real boy minutes. Mm-hmm. Right, That that's that's actually somewhat helpful to, to get that information. And again, you know, this, this could be, you know, the Connor Carrick Memorial Award for getting carried by a better partner, you know, yeah. where, where yeah. Carrick and Gardner were a useful quasi second pair for a while. That was mostly Jake Gardner and not as much Connor Carrick. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still kind of helpful to see. So a bit more on the usage, I think like nominally Giordano and Lilligren still are the third pair, but I guess I really want to emphasize that it's not, you know, the Leafs under Keefe and under Babcock before that use their third pair in a very, you know, structured and specific way. And it doesn't appear that they're as careful doing that now because of Giordano. So, you know, this third pair still is it's getting more defensive zone time um, than offensive zone time. It doesn't play overwhelmingly with Austin Matthews which was sometimes the case for, for third pairs past, right? I think, like, um, I'd have to check this, but I think Sandine played relatively more with Austin Matthews than you'd expect. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that makes sense because, you know, Sandine's a good offensive defenseman. Uh, but actually, okay, never mind, I'm wrong. I just made that up completely. Um, <laughs> but anyways, uh, Sandine doesn't play more with Matthews than you'd expect. But uh, in general, I remember the third pair, you know, sometimes gets more offensive usage than Giordano and Lodegren appear to actually be getting now. Yeah, I actually saw, you know, Travis Dermott is now with the Vancouver Canucks, and at The Athletic, within a few games, there was a headline that came out saying, can Travis Dermott be a long-term answer in the top four? And I said, oh, you may find yourself waiting a long time for the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, now that said, uh, Giordano, I think is legit. The Leafs are in that strange situation that they seem to have stumbled into a few times, which is that they have more plausible defensemen on the left side than the right. That's not uncommon. There are more left shot defensemen in the NHL than on the right side. But now they've got Riley, Muzzin, Giordano, Sandine, when healthy, who are all plausible candidates to play on the left. And then you have on the right side, Brody, Hall, Lyabushkin, Liljegren. There is some conventional wisdom that says to get through the playoffs, you need eight defensemen because at any given time, some of them are going to be injured. But there is going to be a complicating factor now of who do you actually play if you have all of these as options and how do you play them? We've just been talking about um, a third pairing that is now used more aggressively or with less of a sheltering eye. But I honestly, I'm kind of torn between thinking Lilia Grin is probably not in my top six of those names. And yet, the more he works with Giordano, the, if this goes 
well enough, maybe that becomes an answer and you end up having Rasmus Sandin on the outside looking in. It seems unlikely, or at least a priori, it seemed unlikely that that would be the case given how well Sandin had played and given his relative status compared to Lundgren. But as you, as you say, it's not it's not a direct comparison because there's the the confounding factor of left side versus right side. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, I could also see... I could also see them wanting to get Sandin in, especially for... I mean, this is a very minor thing, but I think he is probably the least second-best power play defenseman. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a marginal thing, but if you get one goal in the playoffs from the second pair, or from the second unit power play, that could be the difference, right? So maybe they get him in and just put him on his offside with Giordano. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's inherently crazy. Um, but yeah, it's, it, as you said, it's a lot, it's a lot of people. Uh, and it, it's unclear exactly how it's going to shake out. And I, I, I don't know if Sheldon Keefe knows how it's going to shake out at this point. No, although I will say, I bet you Sheldon Keefe remembers that Rasmus Sandin had a rather rough game in the middle of the Habs Leaf series last year um, when he was added to the lineup. Unfortunately, I think that playoff failure is going to stay with a lot of people in the Leafs organization. It mm-hmm. certainly stayed with us. And that could be the kind of factor that you get into. The basic thing is, if they have Muzzin healthy, he plays. If they have Giordano healthy, he plays. If you have Riley healthy, he obviously plays. If you have Brody healthy, he plays. Um, Lyabushkin has probably shown well enough that he's close to that group at this point. Mm-hmm. And Hall has actually had a nice second half resurgence. Um, things have gone better when he's been separated from Jake Muzzin. Um, so, yeah, like there's a lot to go on there on the basic principle of just get good players and then add them to your lineup. The Giordano trade looks good early. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if this proves an ongoing relationship. Um, you know, he, he might be a rental, but he clearly likes to be here mm-hmm. and he's fit well in the early going, but yeah, it, it does, uh, crowd things and there isn't an easy choice. So yeah, Positive returns is just it raises a lot of questions because now we're thinking, okay, how does this stack up against Florida, for example, or Tampa Bay? Mm-hmm. Um, speaking yeah, of exactly. which, though, Tampa Bay does have the same thing in terms of its defense pairings, right? Like their left side is very strong, and they right, use and they, they like they they have three guys who are and all, they're all on the left side. We covered this, I guess, a couple months ago now, but yeah, they have three guys who are clearly kind of the alpha on their pairing. And mm-hmm. they structure their pairings and steal minutes with those three guys together enough that they're essentially their most played defenseman, despite like the mm-hmm. nominal pairing. So they don't have like a a super structured like oh this third line gets just like really weak minutes or third pairing gets really weak minutes. Um, sorry, the one thing I wanted to note about the difference between the I I, I didn't express this well uh, before or expressed it incorrectly before the difference between what we've seen so far with the Giordano, uh, Lilligren pairing versus say the Sandine third pairings is time with the fourth line Giordano and Lilligren have not played much with the fourth line whereas with Sandine they were you know he very commonly played with the fourth line right and that that given how Keith uses his fourth line where he doesn't really trust them defensively you can infer that you know he, he does he, he, to some extent he does trust Giordano and Lilligren defensively more than he, he did earlier third pairings mm-hmm so um, that's the that's fourth meaningful. line actually. Um, yeah. I was just going to say the fourth line uh, matches up neatly with the next topic we want to discuss if we're ready to leave Jordana. Uh, just wanted to say one more thing. I guess mm-hmm. the thing I'm looking for from this, from Jordano, 
in particular, the thing that I think would be most helpful to the Leafs if he was, if he'd be able to do or be able to contribute to, is stabilizing results with the Tavares line. Mm-hmm. And when I say Tavares line, I, I mean you know whatever form the Tavares line takes, whether that's Tavares Nylander, whether that's Tavares Mikheyev, um, Kerfoot seems to be kind of stapled there on the other side. Um, because we need that line to be really strong. You know, we've talked about this ad nauseum, the whole two first lines thing, and we'll talk about this more later when we have a potentially really hot, when I have a really potentially hot take. I don't want to get Fuglman in the line of fire on that. Um, <laughs> but the second line, you know, as has been discussed, has, has struggled in, in various ways this season. And... Um, it, in particular, it struggled defensively. Part of that has been really bad goaltending, but also part of that has been just an inability to, um, you know, prevent shots and chances to the degree that we want them to. Giordano's mm-hmm. strength currently is still his defense. And if he can help stabilize that, that line and give them better defensive results, well, that's a huge advantage for the Leafs. Right. You know, with the Mark Giordano thing, you, you want to think, okay, how does this change the trajectory of the team? Does this put them on a par with those big Atlantic teams that we're talking about? Does it even move them ahead of them? In the best case scenario, Giordano comes in, consistently stabilizes the defensive results for John Tavares. And, you know, Tavares and Nylander have still been productive offensively this whole time, mm-hmm. even if a lot of it is special teams. Like, the, they're still very, very good players. And so... If we can get that humming at, you know, kind of uh, a quasi-first-line level that gets 55% of the goals and stuff like that, um, that goes a long way. And that's sort of what you're hoping for. And then, you know, we have a a third line that has been successful at what it's doing. And then we have a fourth line that has kind of hit the skids a bit lately. Mm -hmm. Um, And has now added Colin Blackwell as a name in the mix. Um. You know, father time is ruthless. There's no easy way to say this. Wayne Simmons and Jason Spetz have both looked better to start the year. Mm-hmm. Um, Jason Spetz has been productive his whole time in Toronto until recently. And, you know, Wayne Simmons did have a... Uh, well, I'm not sure if it was on purpose, but he, <laughs> he had a good goal last night. I would, I would call that a goal. I wouldn't call that a good goal. <laughs> yeah. They're all good in the sense that they, they went can. in, right? They they don't yeah, they don't ask yeah. how. Yeah, he was joking. Blackwell apparently said that was like the worst breakaway move he'd ever seen. Um, but you know they count. And, and you know Simmons had some pep. He was playing well against his old team. He had a fight where he absolutely filled in McEwen on on Philadelphia. There are like maybe fifteen guys in the NHL who should not be like abjectly terrified to fight Win Simmons. Mm-hmm. Like, he will feed you your teeth. Yeah. Um, and it's... it's I, I wonder where, what it is in particular. Because, like, Simmons is famously very lanky, right? Mm-hmm. He, has, he has very skinny legs, a very atypical build for a hockey player, right? Mm-hmm. He, he's, not, he's not super um, hefty, right? But he just absolutely fills these guys in. He, it just seems like he's absurdly strong for his size. And, yeah, he's a tough dude. The thing yeah. that I always noticed about him is that he... And again, look, I'm out of my depth trying to analyze fighting, but he never seems like he gets as thrown off as other players do. You know, like, there's a Mike Tyson quote, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Mm. Um, With Simmons in a fight, he seems to, like, he keeps steady, he keeps his grip on the other guy's collar. He 
kind of holds things together until the opportunity comes, and then he just fills the guy in. Like yeah, I, he must. And, and you especially see that against guys who are not as experienced fighting as he is, and they kind of they go wild or they don't know what they're doing. I, I wonder if uh, is, he just has like kind of absurd core strength and is able to keep his balance on you know fighting on blades of not like. Or on, on yeah, the, you know, like knife it's blade. not easy to do. And yeah. it would correspond with his other skills, right? Which is that he's always been great operating point blank. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, anyway. That said, unfortunately, the on-ice results... Yeah, they, have, side, they haven't they been haven't good. They haven't been as great. No. Um, um, and that's, you know, that that's tough. There was a, uh, a James Myrtle article this week talking about is this nearing the end of the line for Wayne Simmons? Um, and he does have a contract next year for cheap. But unfortunately, at this level, you know, we're at the tough decisions have to be made stage. And I think he means a lot to this locker room. You know you're going to get 100% of his effort. In the playoffs, I'm sure he'll raise his game to whatever extent he can. You know, I, I never doubt that you're going to get Wayne Simmons' best. But it's just, unfortunately, age takes a toll and... It hasn't been a great 2022 for him so far. So, you know, he's been healthy scratch sometimes. And Spezza is also kind of on the edge now. Again, both great players who have aged well, but uh, no one can do this forever. So Colin Blackwell is now another element in that fourth line rotation with Spezza, with Simmons, with Kyle Clifford, and with some of the younger players who may or may not play a role. You know, we have Nick Eberzese, um, who got into the mix. Nick Robertson is around. Alex Steves is potentially there. If Matthew Nyes decides to join up with the Leafs, he's another name. Uh, in the case of Colin Blackwell, I have been fine with what I've noticed of him. Again, you don't get that much of an opportunity to stand out. Right. Like, it's... <laughs> he, yeah. yeah, he doesn't, doesn't get to do a whole lot. Um, does have a goal, which is nice, I guess. Yeah, he's um, he's energetic. I definitely see why people liked him. You know, they said he'll be an energy bug on the fourth line. I have seen nothing to cause me to doubt that. Um, I don't know if he really changes... Uh, the outlook for that grouping, he can probably shoot a little bit. There seems to be yeah. some evidence. Yeah, you know? he has a relatively decent track record of <clears throat> outshooting his expected goals, which is obviously unusual for a fourth liner because if you have the ability to outshoot your expected goals, you're not usually playing on the fourth line, right? And mm -hmm. if you are the type of, if you are a fourth line player who does that, it suggests that there, there are other deficiencies in your game that have prevented you from being promoted. Yeah, and in Blackwell's case, it's sort of where else could he fit? Mm -hmm. um, he looks like a nice bottom six addition. Right? You know, Ilya Mikheyev is actually having a a terrific little run. Mikheyev and Engvall this year have been really, really great. And I I think I, I was kind of low on both of them to start the year, and I'm still not like 100% convinced that this is just the level that we're going to expect from them going forward because they've just been crazy play drivers this year. Yeah, but you know we have gotten that performance out of them, and it's been very helpful to the team. Yeah, like that makes that a much more intimidating third line because you know we talked about David Kampf. We and from the beginning we said, look, you'll always get defense out of him, um, and that man loves defense. 
more than most people love their families. He is <laughs> committed um, to, to playing the game the right way as a defensive center. But the offense was going to be kind of dicey. And with Ilya Mikheyev, you know, again, some of this is just shorthanded threats, which is also great. But there's just enough there that it's not a total write-off. And then you have a line that can win its minutes. Um, and that is a pain in the ass to play against. Um, so, yeah, I think that's fitting really well. And then that leaves Blackwell in this fourth-line mix. Mm. Um the kind of carousel of young players, rookies, stuff like that. I don't really know that I see those guys getting in very much. It seems like, I mean, I think generally we overrate the, there's like shiny new toy syndrome. Yeah. Right. It's like, oh, this person can make an impact. And like, they probably won't in part because they're playing five minutes a night. Yeah, right. that's the other thing. It's you like know, just difficult. To, yeah, it's just difficult to make yeah. an impact in that small time. But yeah, it's like it, it's it's tough to it's tough to jump into the NHL and immediately start making a difference. And usually, like the players who do that, like Coffee would made a difference last year, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, it, they're they're more um, they have more like pedigree, more renown than the people we're talking about. No, maybe, maybe Nick Robertson can do so, but I guess I'm not, I'm not banking on it. No. And you know, you see the appeal speaking of Caulfield, you look at Robertson, you say this guy can shoot, put him up with Tavares, but coaches are risk averse for one thing. And also the playoffs are a hard time to learn how the NHL works. Mm. You know, it's, it's brutal. It's high pressure. Now Robertson has done it before against Columbus. He was in that series, but like, I keep thinking, like, okay, but is Sheldon Keefe going to shuffle out Alex Kerfoot when the chips are down? I don't know. I I think that it's more likely to see a more veteran lineup. And Alex Steves, for what it's worth, is sort of an older pro player, so I would see him as more likely than some of the others. There's a lot of talk about Matthew Nyes, though, and apparently the Leafs, one, are very keen on him. You know, he was close to a no-go in trade discussions. But if you're the Leafs, of course you say that. Yeah, absolutely. You're like, you're like Matthew Nye. How can you even ask us to trade for Matt? Matthew Nye? Do you have any idea who you're talking Like, you know, of course you do that. Yeah. You speak his name in these sacred halls? How yeah. dare you? <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and so I don't know how much of that is posturing. It sounds a lot like they're seriously considering bringing him aboard and having him leave the NCAA. Mm-hmm. He's in the Frozen and, Four right now, I believe. Yeah, and so whenever his college season is done, he can join up with the Leafs. And, you know, physically he's big enough to be a contributor. Yeah, that, that's I can see that being an advantage to the, the coaching staff saying, you know, as much as we don't want that size bias, like rule of the day or anything, Nyes is 6'3 and 200 pounds or whatever. You can, you can more easily picture him on a fourth line or, like, in an energy role than you can, for example, Abrazisi. Yeah. So, there are hints that this is going to happen. I just look at the lineup and I'm like, really? Because, um, you know, if you're going to just bring him on in the fourth-line role, you can do that. But I don't know that that gives him much opportunity to make a big difference. I would probably rather play someone experienced like Colin Blackwell, mm-hmm. who's been doing this for a while. So... Yeah, 
lots to consider bringing it around on Blackwell. I think that he is a good fourth liner. And if we look at this unsentimentally, he should be playing probably over Spezza or Simmons, mm-hmm. certainly over Kyle Clifford. Um, Blackwell can actually play center. Um, he, he did a little bit of it last night. Not a, an outstanding face-off man, whereas Spezza is very good at face-offs, so I, I don't know how much of a role that'll play. But I would expect him to be in the mix and yet in a limited role. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. So you decided to make everyone mad. Well, if I really wanted to do this, I would have put this on Twitter. But I I was considering doing it. And I'm like, you know what? I I don't want to deal with with this. (laughs) It's a lot of smoke, man. Yes. Okay. So the the question I'm asking, and I realize listeners until now, they won't have any idea what we're talking about. Um, The the other topic we want to talk about in the podcast is, should the Leafs trade William Neander in the offseason? Pauses for vigorous booing. Um... So, you know, we've we've been very, I guess, like, pro-Nylander, right? I would, really, I would just say it's kind of pro-logic and pro, like, not trading away a good player for dog shit, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and still, like, you know, the answer to, to the Leafs trade, anyone in the offseason, aside from, like, Austin Matthews, in which case the answer is no, um, mm-hmm. is it depends on the return, right? So, I guess, to be more specific, what I'm actually asking is, for the median return in a William Nylander trade, are the Leafs better off making that ex- exchange? And I think for a long time, this would have been, this, the answer to that question would have obviously been no, because Nylander is a good player, a very good player, um, and that and his value for, for various reasons was probably lower on the trade market than it was on the ice. Now, I guess the natural question is, well, ha- has that changed, if at all? And I'm not sure that it has, because I don't know what his value is, um, what his value is on the trade market, but the core of it, and this has been remarked on to some degree, um, but I, I think it hasn't been remarked upon in the way that I think is most accurate. Um, Nylander has not had a great year at 5-on-5 five five by his normal lofty standards. All right? And this has especially been true since the All-Star break. When we think about William Nylander, especially the last couple years, you know, and, and these last couple of years, we assumed it was kind of the real William Nylander as he, he grew into his, his prime, effectively, right? He's, he's a prime age player right now. Um, what we think about is elite uh, zone transitions, elite play driver, um, good shot, although one that does not go in as much as the eye test as it should, strange inability for his team to outshoot their expected goals when he's on the ice, and it's unclear why that occurs, but it's occurred for a very long time now. Uh, sometimes very spacey defensively but does enough to move the puck in the right direction that he clearly outweighs that. And then also dynamite on the power play, right? That's, that's the theory of William Nylander and it, some totals to make him a player who I think is pretty comfortably and pretty comfortably has been for the past couple of years, a solid first line wigger, right? Um, like by expected gar, he's always been near the top of the league. Actually he looks better than that by actual gar in part because of um, the, in part because of like some bad goaltending at times, or not sorry, not bad goaltending, a bad shooting at times. He has been, um, he looks slightly worse by that, but he he he's you know very comfortably considered a top line player. Yeah, and, and if, we've talked before about his ability to be independently great. You know, he yes. has a, a lot of offensive skills, even though we're playing him at least a lot of the time with John Tavares. Although there's been more of a move away from that recently. Um, Newlander can do a lot of things for himself. Um, Mitch Marner is having an absolutely spectacular year. You know, we talked about 
the level that we need him to be at. You can say Marner is reaching it right now. Um, but at the same time, I think Marner is a fantastic supporting player. You know, he he feeds really well off other great players. Nylander does a bit of that too, but I do think that he's better on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, at his best. Yeah. And as you know, you know, it's it's been imperfect this year, for sure. It has. So just to put some numbers on this, it's not that we need to really convince anyone that William Nylander's a first-line player, but over the past couple years, so the last two seasons prior to this one, Nylander was basically... Um, slightly below average among first line among like first line players in, in goals above replacement. So he was like the seventieth highest gar in the league. Right? You think about it, there's there's thirty one teams multiplied by three, that's ninety three players. So he's like comfortably a first liner, although um if he's you know if he's your best winger, he's you're probably not a great team. That's the amazing thing about the Leafs. They he hasn't been the least best winger and he doesn't have to be. Right? Mm-hmm. And and having a first line winger basically playing the second wing is a big part of the Leafs' competitive advantage and has been the last couple of years. And almost all of that, um, not almost all, but like a, a very, very sizable chunk of that is his even strength offense, and in particular, his play driving, right? So that has not been there to the same degree this year. And this has been papered over to some extent because he's still gotten a lot of points. And, you know, a lot of that has been power play points. He has, um, yeah, so like a huge chunk of his points this year have been on the power play. But he also has been very productive at 5-on-5. His points per 60 rate at 5-on-5 is uh, like 2 points per 60, roughly. That's slightly below where he's been over the past couple years, but that difference is almost entirely attributable to a low secondary assist rate, which I don't really care about. His goals and primary assists, which is what you pay William Nylander for, have been the same as always. Um, But the 5-on-5 play driving has been really worrying, because with essentially the same or easier usage as last year. He has a negative Corsi row, a negative XG row, which has never happened for Union Andrew before. And by RAPM, his Corsi and XG impact is just about neutral. And that is, again, very atypical for him because Nylander is usually among the league leaders in that. Mm-hmm. And because Nylander is a goals, less than expected goals guy, at least in, with respect to team impact, he kind of really needs to have a strong XG impact to be a true offensive difference maker. Right, because he's not shooting the lights out, even though it looks like he could do so. Um, I do think it's fair to say there have been some bumps this year. You know, Nylander does occasionally make defensive plays where you're just like, what are you doing, man? Or he's not as engaged as you might reasonably expect. And a lot of people are defensive about this because they think that Nylander gets uh, held to account for this much more than other players who also make mistakes. Um, And certainly Sheldon Keefe seems to make a point of sometimes giving him a public kick in the ass. Um, He did it again recently. He said, like, look, Willis' play has not been up to the standard we expect recently. Um, And for what it's worth, Ian just responded with two pretty good games since then. Yeah. And, you know, that's always the the, the trick there. Was he just getting unlucky, or what is it? Or does he sometimes need that motivation? I think Keefe clearly thinks so um you know it's difficult to discuss Nylander with a clear eye sometimes because there are a group of people who dislike him for clearly very silly reasons Mm -hmm. and who don't acknowledge the fact that he's obviously really good Uh, you know he's not perfect uh, at the same time and I think you can at least say that's something you listen on 
he's not a I wouldn't even consider trading him, especially depending on how the playoffs go. Yeah. So that that gets into sort of why he why it might make sense to trade him. And I think the big thing is his points still look awesome. He's he's gonna he's already passed his career high in points. Um he he's on pace for around seventy five points or so, which is phenomenal, obviously. I think that's like forty fifth in the league or something. So again, by scoring, very comfortable first liner. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he, his ability to run a power play, and you know, make no mistake, he is a real big reason why the Leafs power play is, is so good. And his versatility, I think, in a lot of ways, allows the Leafs to run such a fluid power play because no matter where you stick him, he can be good connective tissue on the power play. Mm-hmm. Right, because he he's a threat from everywhere. Because he can shoot, he can pass, he can carry the puck. Um, but those can be. Those power play goals and those, those um, you know, the, that, the scoring with the man advantage can stick out and can make his value perhaps higher than it actually is. not the thing I'm actually worried about really long term is, is this play driving decrease an aberration or is it not? And it's hard to tell right now. His offensive play driving, as discussed, has been actually fine. Like the Tavares line offensively has been has been good in a variety of ways, at least in terms of getting chances. They haven't always converted as well. And that, that is a concern, but that's not exactly what we're getting at here in terms of the biggest concern. The problem is his defense went from, last year at least, the reasonable side of average, the, 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 the good side of average, to the bad side of average. And that's cut into his value a fair bit. Um, and, you know, under the years prior to that, his he, he was on the bad side of average defensively, but his offensive play driving impact was, was much higher. Um, and last year seemed like, okay, you know, they're taking a step back, and this is part of perhaps the Keefe system as well. Um, they play kind of more slowly, more controlled, lo- lower pace in both directions. And that trade-off was, was working essentially to the same net impact as what he was doing previously uh, in the partial season under Keefe and before that under Babcock, in the last season under Babcock anyways. But... Now, you know, the offensive play driving is good, not great, and the defense is bad, and that leaves you with an average play driver for a guy who really needs to be an elite play driver to be worth his salary. Right. This is the tricky thing. Look, I think, you know, notwithstanding this little recent dip, I think William Nylander is a great choice to be maybe the third best forward on the team. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, if there's someone out there who says, you know, those suckers in Toronto don't appreciate him, their media is insane, their fans are rabid, um, look at his production, look at his skill set. If someone looks at him and says, I think that could be our number two forward, or, or even, you know, like a real good threat to be a second line center or something like that, there is potential for someone to overvalue him um and i'm worried this may come up in the event of a first round loss um that said there are also a lot of reasons why this potentially would work out real bad for the leaves right um, yeah the, i mean the, I, I, you know the first of them is that william nander has a long track record as a, a strong play driver mm-hmm. right what and we should probably give him a little more respect than one year where he has bad pay driving results as saying, okay, yeah, he, he's, he's done. We might need to trade him. Like, you know, we, we don't want to be left holding the bag. 
Yeah, and this is a guy who's going to turn 26 in May. Right. And like, it, we have no reason to suspect age decline. Yeah, and like visually, he looks pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Right? Like his, his puck carrying still feels dangerous. He had a, a great zone entry and assist yesterday to John Tavares. Yeah. Right? And, you know, there's a real question of, okay, what type of player wants this player right now? You know, he's... Uh, he's not old by any means. He's in his prime. Um, he's highly productive. It's a team that's trying to compete in the present tense, right. like the Toronto Maple Leafs. Yeah, he is two years after this one on a deal which I think most would agree is is average. It's, it's like you know fair value. Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps he's performed on, he's underperformed that a little bit this year. But uh, if you really care about the five on five play drafting, but you know the power play success does matter. Those are still real goals. Yeah, yeah, and he's still really productive. And, you know, there are some people who are going to say it's silly to even contemplate this. The You know, the team getting the best player usually wins the trade. The trade that William Nylander ends up in, he's probably the best player. And so there's an excellent chance for, the, for that to kind of go awry. Again, if you're in the position of the Leafs, you say, okay, if I'm giving him up, what am I getting? How am I replacing him? Because if you're making your team worse in the present tense and you're where the Leafs are, where you're trying to capitalize on this incredible play from Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner and also before John Tavares ages out completely, you've really got to be thinking pretty hard how you're going to reallocate that money and those assets to get a better team next year. Mm -hmm. You know, and you should be thinking really very hard um about any return um before you pull the trigger on it because this is not an ideal position i do see the the argument though it says okay if he's a little more valued by the market than we think he really is then you at least hear him out and as a more practical matter if this goes sideways in the first round again this year i think there are going to be changes and they're going to amount to Nylander or Marner being traded, I suspect, and then maybe Cal Dubas being fired. Yeah, and, I mean, Marner's been on such a crazy run, it's hard to envision trading him right now. No, um, which is kind of the the crazy thing, is that, you know, he's more tradable, maybe, than he would have seen last year, because he's been playing out of his goddamn mind. Um, and at the same time, that'll be an incentive to keep Matthews and Marner together as sort of a, a terrifying top unit. Right. I feel like if the Leafs trade Nylander, it's, it's to reallocate, as you said. It's to reallocate the, the cap, and not, as the meme goes, to get better defenders, but, you know, perhaps you use some of it for a goalie, perhaps you use some of it to spread out your depth more. Now, the thing, a possible reason to not do this again is, well, you know, a year ago maybe this made sense because we're, we don't think Mikheyev and Engvall are very good. But mm-hmm. Mikheyev and Engvall have been great, so, like, do we really want to push them that far down the depth, the pecking order? It depends on how real you believe they are. And Mikheyev, of course, is a free agent, and we don't know if he's going to be back either. Mm-hmm. Right? So, yeah, lots of moving parts in, in that regard. Um, you need to have a clear answer for how am I a better team at the end of this, for sure, um, if you're going to contemplate it. Yeah, and I don't know, I guess, I'm trying to think of the teams that would that would want him. I, I, I would assume, as you said, it has to be a good team, right? Mm-hmm. So I wonder if a team like, I don't know, Minnesota, they have, they have a lot of depth forwards. They could, they could see him as being a good play driver there. Like, the, really, in terms of his play as well, so much of it just boils down to 
do you think this is essentially a low watermark for William Nylander in terms of his play driving? Is this the worst he's going to be play driving over the course of his contract? I think it probably is. I, I, I like we shouldn't we shouldn't forget about the five years of history prior where he was at worst a good play driver and was at best an elite play driver. Mm-hmm. Right? But yeah, a team like Minnesota or St. Louis, Nashville was perennially in need of offense. Um, LA, if they want to start building up, they're, I mean, they're, they're second in their division. Their division sucks, but like, they, they can see him as like, hey, you know, is this, is this a guy we can pair with Quentin Byfield? Do you want to hear something painful? I think sure. you would make a lot of sense for Boston. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would now, suck. Yeah, it would suck absolute ass, to be honest with you. But they could use more offense. They're almost maxed out on defense after the Lindholm deal. Yeah. Um, now, they would probably be thinking, okay, we're going to play him at second-line center. But, you know, a line of Taylor Hall, William Nylander, and whoever, I suspect they might figure it out. Right. So, And, and you can insulate that line because you have the android of Patrice Bergeron. <laughs> I hate him so much. He makes me so mad. He's so good. It's still. Re- so okay. I had this in my notes as well, where it's like the we had some stuff that we wanted uh, some some supporting back uh, supporting information about JT and Nylander as a pairing, and I, in my notes I said this is like really relevant. We need them to be really good if we face Boston because even as good as Matthews Marner Bunting has been, even as good as they've been, I am not confident they go they beat Bergeron head to head. The problem with Patrice Bergeron is that the offense isn't as great, but that line can expect to at least saw off against literally anyone on the planet. Like, uh, against an all-star team. Mm-hmm. They're that good. And unfortunately, that's kind of the fear. Is it, you know, who do you put them up against? Are they getting absolutely fried? Are you, you know, like, look, we all love David Kampf, but... Mikheyev, Kampf, and Engvall going up against the Bergeron line, I still feel like that's asking more than they're capable of. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's something that we kind of have to reckon with in terms of the value yeah. of William Nylander. Yeah. It, so, just to... This is a uh, uplifting slash depressing stat. Austin Matthews, in just raw expected goals for percentage among players who have spent more than 500 minutes on the ice, so that's like regular NHLers, effectively... His expected goals for percentage is 63.5%. That is amazing. That is fourth in the league. Mm-hmm. The three guys above him, Mason Marchment in Florida, which is just kind of a, a nice kick in the teeth for these fans, and then Brad Marchand and Patrice Bergeron. Patrice Bergeron is first with a 70% expected goals for rate. 70%. That's fucking gross. Yeah, like, I don't know what else to say at this point other than to say, like, look, that's not something that happens. Like, the very, very best players at controlling play rush up against two-thirds of it. Like, that's what you get in hockey. It's a competitive sport. It's a balanced league. It's very hard to even control two-thirds of the play. And Bergeron is clearing that level in his mid-30s. He's still uh, absurdly dominant. So, you know, I've kind of waxed bitterly poetic about him, but... I think that that does add some context to what the Leafs have to be thinking. Because what all of this podcast all year and in previous years has been is like, okay, what's going to happen in the playoffs? And we're constantly thinking, does Giordano change what's going to happen in the playoffs? Does this 
potential cavalcade of fourth line prospects change what's going to happen in the playoffs? Does the stabilization for Tavares change what's going to happen in the playoffs? And of course, goaltending is the wild card. And all of these things are factors. And yet, you do look at our competition, and there are going to be some really scary lines. And a team that's kind of built on we're going to have two first lines needs them to act like it. So pretty much, and it, and this year know. they haven't been since January first. Now I don't want to overstate this because, like, first off, January first is an arbitrary endpoint. I, I know Katya mm-hmm. will be singing "Choose Your Endpoints" when she listens to this. Um, but they still have like a 54% expected goal since January 1st, which is good. The problem is their, their, their goaltending has completely collapsed. Mm-hmm. Right? But it was 58% before January 1st, and that, that's kind of the level at which we're contenders. Like, we're, that's a real, real line there. Right? Because they, they are getting the easier competition at this point. We need them to be, to be great. And like, 54% is, is very good. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't, I'm not going to blame Neander and Tavares for, their, for the bad goaltending that they faced. Right, they've gotten like Tosca to level goaltending. I don't think that's on them, not entirely. Mm-hmm. Right, but we need them to be really, really strong. They haven't been quite as strong as we wanted. And again, remember, like I know, I know, fifty-four percent XG is really good, but it's a neat underline. You have to deflate that because it's always going to be goals less than expected goals. Right, you know, we're constantly measuring ourselves against the other very best teams. Yes, Florida, yeah, and Cut, that, that's the other thing, like. 54% is, is very good. But then you compare it to... Like, again, the bar is not, are the Leafs a good team? But yes, they're a good team. Are, the bar is, are the Leafs a great team? Because they're going to have to beat a great team in round one. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. Like, if the Leafs were in the Western Conference right now, pretty much anyone they draw, I would bet on the Leafs to beat their asses. Mm-hmm. However, that's not going to be the case. They're going to draw a very good team. So we're holding them to that high standard. Um... Right. I think there are encouraging signs for sure. No, I I, I, yeah. I do as well. And I think a lot of the idea of, okay, does it make sense to trade Neander after this offseason is on the worry of like, it's better, or on the idea that it might be better to trade a guy a year too early than a year too late. Mm-hmm. Right? Or in this case, like walk him to free agency and he either leaves and we don't have a lot of, we don't, don't have the ability to replace him or we sign him to a contract that we end up not liking because he's declined and can't do what we need him to do, especially as Tavares continues to decline. Mm-hmm. Right, so like we need to make a decision soon about what the future of the Leafs second line looks like. And yeah, this and, year, that hasn't yeah. been good enough. And the question is, do we expect it to revert back to, you know, what it was last year? Like, do we expect essentially Neil Andrew to play a little bit better, juice that up a little bit more, and, you know, continue kind of as as we are? Or do we think, oh, if Neander, if this, if Neander is somewhere in between last year and this year, is our second line good enough? And if the answer is no, especially with Tavares continuing to decline, we have to at least explore how do we make that good enough. And the only way to really do that is to trade Neander because yeah. the rest of our roster is so constrained. That, that, that's basically where we're at is, okay, are the Leafs good enough? I think that they have at least a fighting chance against anyone in this tier. And at their best, if they're getting good goaltending, huge if, I think you can even say that they're close to a coin flip against most of this competition. Um, is that enough? Is there a road to them separating themselves above the uh, competition? Or am I overestimating them and they're actually outclassed? Um, that, I think, is something that Cal Dubas is constantly reckoning with right now. Um, 
you know, I have to admit, the idea of trading William Nylander is just painful to me. It is. To contemplate. Because he, you know. he's, again, he, we're saying, oh, he's had a down year, he's had a down year. He has, but he has still been, again, like, pretty comfortably in and around that first-line winger territory. Mm-hmm. Like, how many players did we have before 2016 who were consistently as good as William Nylander has been since? You know, through that, mm-hmm. that fallow period after Sundin left, it was Phil Kessel. Um, and, yeah, maybe and JVR in his best year. Yeah, and, and, you know, if you're complaining about defense, I don't think <laughs> either JVR or Kessel are giving you uh, too much to hang your hat on mm. there. So, yeah, I mean, this is certainly something painful to, to contemplate, but I do think that it's... It's less off the wall than maybe some people think, and it's unfortunately more of a possibility if things don't go well um, this offseason. So it would depend on what it looks like. Are you getting back a younger, cheaper player and freeing up some cap space that you can kind of look at this roster and say, I'll probably be weaker at the right wing spot that he vacates, but I'll be stronger at a couple of spots and maybe on net I'm a slightly better team. Mm Mm-hmm. But it's a tough trick to, to pull off. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it didn't work, even if it is tried. And in some way, as, you, as we alluded to, it's like a little bit awkward because the Leafs want present wins. The team that trades for William Nylander probably also wants present wins. So, like, the mm-hmm. natural thing you would think of is the Leafs trade Nylander and receive futures and then flip those futures for someone else. Mm-hmm. Right? And, you know, at that point, you kind of get dangerously close to win a hockey trade. <laughs> yeah. And that's that's a tricky thing to do. So, yeah. Um, I hope we haven't betrayed our listenership, who know we're ardently pro-William Nylander, mm. but, uh, you know, it's something something we felt we should bring up. Yes. Um, was there anything else that we wanted to discuss this week? I got nothing. Okay, cool. So, yeah, that's everything that, that, we, that we had. Um, definitely, you know, let us know your thoughts on, on whether... Our William Nylander fan club memberships have been revoked or not. Um, <laughs> but in any case, thanks for listening. You can catch all of mine and Fudelman's work at PetroFanClubbits.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RVNAT4. We'll see you next week.